Well, I turn now to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 as we continue our study of 1 Corinthians. Originally, we had scheduled the Lord's Supper for this week, but we made that change to the schedule. So we'll come back to 1 Corinthians today and then have a sermon for the Lord's Supper next week, Lord willing. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we'll read... This morning, verses 35 through 49. This is God's holy word as he inspired the Apostle Paul to write this letter to the church at Corinth. Again, 1 Corinthians 15, 35 through 49. Let's attend with reverence to God's inspired and therefore inerrant word. But someone will say, how are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? Foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he pleases, and to each seed its own body. All flesh is not the same flesh. But there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of animals, another of fish, and another of birds. There are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies, but the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For one star differs from another star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption, it is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterward the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of dust, The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word for us at this time. Let's now pray. But we do pray now that you would indeed bless not only the reading of this word, which has just taken place, but its exposition and its hearing, that all of us might be built up all the more after the image of Christ. And so we do ask that you would cause the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts now to be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, when I was first drawing up my preaching plan for... Uh, this uh, chapter, the working title I had in my little book that I have for, uh, for this sermon was The Glory of Resurrection. Uh, if you look in your bulletins, you'll notice that's not what ended up being there. Uh, Paul certainly does talk about the glory of resurrection in this passage in his analogies for resurrection. But as I, I was digging into the passage, considering the Greek text and Uh, the context here and and read several sound commentaries it it became apparent to me that uh, in this passage 
Paul is, is not primarily talking about how glorious our resurrected bodies will be. We'll, we'll talk more about that in the future, Lord willing. We can certainly gather that from what Paul says here, there will be a glorious state in which we will dwell in the world to come. But his point in this passage is really to answer scoffers who are ridiculing the concept of resurrection as unreasonable, as illogical. As I've pointed out in other contexts, there is nothing more reasonable than to have true biblical faith. The world would say that faith and reason have nothing to do with one another, but true biblical faith, and I think the world says that, because, of course, every false religion expects you to believe something unreasonable at some point. But true biblical faith is reasonable. That's not to say you can arrive at it by reason all by itself. But there's nothing more rational, more reasonable, than to believe something because God says it's true. If the true God says something that makes it true... That's why Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness because he knew he could see the evidences, he could trust God and so that if God who is all-powerful says that he will cause something to come about, it will come about. Well, related to that, we can see it's perfectly logical then, perfectly reasonable, to believe that miracles can happen. That doesn't mean that we should gullibly accept every claim that a miracle has occurred without good evidence, God doesn't expect us to do that either. But it does mean that we know miracles can occur because we know God is fully capable of performing them. And that would include the miracle of resurrection. If we can believe Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, then we should be able easily to believe that the Red Sea can part, that an axe head can float, that a donkey can be made to speak, that the dead can be raised. Why? Because the one who made everything from nothing can do anything with the things he's made. And that's really Paul's argument in this passage. And the reason he cites or uses these analogies that he uses in this passage Despite the ridicule of scoffers, it is absolutely logical, reasonable, to believe in resurrection. And in making his argument, Paul offers several points. One is an analogy from the plant world, another is an analogy from the animal world, a third is an analogy from cosmic things. And fourth, he gives an description of the resurrected human body. And fifth, he gives the example of Christ. So those are the things we're going to look at here this morning. In verse 35, Paul writes, But someone will say, How are the dead raised up, and with what body do they come? Now we see from the context that these questions do not actually proceed from a genuine curiosity from people who actually believe in resurrection. We are all, no doubt, curious about what life in the world to come is going to be like. Who wouldn't be curious about that, especially when we believe in it? We really believe it's going to happen. Of course we're curious about what it's going to be like, and much of it is left outside of God's revelation so far. We will see it in the world to come, that we can only speculate, and we ought to be careful about what we speculate. 
as we must not build doctrine on speculation. But remember, the main point of this chapter so far has been to counter the teachings of those who deny the real bodily resurrection, the reality of actual physical resurrection. In fact, the but that we see at the beginning of verse 35 is the Greek, there are different words that we can translate as but from the Greek. This is the Greek word ale, uh, which is telling us it's presenting a contrast. Paul has been establishing the reality of resurrection and how foolish it is to deny that that reality is real. <laughs> so it's, it's foolish to deny that, that resurrection really does occur and also at the same time say you're a Christian. And so here he's presenting one last challenge from the resurrection deniers. He's been saying, look, the resurrection is real. These are the things, the reasons that we must believe in it. But some will still say, oh yeah, how could that be? They scoffingly ask these questions. So this isn't a question that comes from genuine believers who, are, who know that resurrection is real and yet are saying, but what is, what's it really going to be like, Paul? Can you give us some more information? This is a question he's anticipating from people who scoffingly are asking it as if to say, believing the dead can be raised is absolutely ridiculous. What a foolish thing to think that the dead can be raised. How could that even happen? They make the arrogant mistake of thinking, if I can't imagine it, if I can't imagine how it would be and how it would happen, then it can't happen. And so in verse 36, Paul calls them foolish. So again, there, that's evidence he's talking here to the scoffers and not not to genuine believers. He's not going to say, oh, how foolish you are for asking what things are, for being curious about what your state in the future will be like. No. He's saying how foolish you are for challenging that God could raise the dead. He doesn't actually use, this was a curious thing to me, an interesting thing to me as I was digging into this, he doesn't use the word for foolish that he used back in chapters 1 and 2 for people who are outside of grace. That word comes from the same source that we get our word moron from. Nor in is this the word that he uses in Galatians when he says the Galatians are foolish? Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? <laughs> this is a different word. It's, uh, it's aphron in the Greek. It literally means something like headless. You're not using your head. He's saying, why don't you stop and think before you ask such a foolish question as to how could God possibly raise the dead? has often the nuanced meaning of you know, someone refusing to think. So Paul goes on then as he says, well, you're just refusing to think. Think about this. And he goes on then in this passage to show how the resurrection deniers are simply refusing to think. They're refusing to use their heads. Like those to whom Paul refers in Romans one twenty two, proffering or claiming to be wise, they became fools. Not using the same word there as he uses here, but it's the same kind of concept. But despite the ridicule of these scoffing resurrection deniers, it is logical, it is reasonable to believe in resurrection if we know who God is. 
As we've already established, the God who can make everything from nothing can do anything with something. He can do whatever he wants with the things that he's made. If he can just declare things to exist and that makes them exist, what can't he do with the things that already do exist, the things that he's made? Paul makes several points in support of that fact that it's reasonable to believe in resurrection. The first one he makes here is he offers an analogy from the plant world. That's in verses 36 through 38. Foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be, but merely grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. God has made many plants to produce after seeds, to reproduce by seeds. The seed is planted in the ground. Now, unless the seed is destroyed as such, unless it ceases to be a seed, it will become nothing else. But though the seed ceases to be a seed, recognizably, it becomes a thriving plant. There is continuity, but significant change. And we'll get into this in the future, Lord willing, when we're talking about how this does connect and need to tell us something about what the resurrected life will be like. There's continuity. It's still the same body, but also significantly changed. The plant is much more glorious than the seed itself was. So that's a hint we have something about the resurrected life. We, that's, that's not Paul's main point here, but certainly along the way we can glean that from it, that that the resurrected life will be a lot more glorious than now. And obviously we see that said more plainly in many other scriptures. So we can infer that there will be continuity, but significant change between our bodies as they are now and as they will be in the resurrection. As Paul will say in verses 51 and 52, and so we'll deal with this more when we get down to those verses in the future, Lord willing, We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. Paul's point here is to point out, if God can do such a thing with plants, can't he do something similar with human bodies, if he wants to? Can't he just choose to do something like that with your body, even though dead? Cause it to rise and produce something more glorious than when it was a Seed? The God who made seeds to die, so to speak, and yet become a living, thriving plant, can of course take whatever remains of the decayed human body, even if it's just one molecule left of it, and make a new body from it. And far more glorious and better than the one that died. As in Ezekiel's vision in Ezekiel 37, 1-14 that we read earlier, wherein the Lord takes dry bones, there's no flesh or organs left on them. That's what dry bones means, right? And we, hear, we just read earlier, uh, heard the sound, as it were, that, that Ezekiel heard of those bones rattling as they came together. And then he saw the organs and the muscles and all, those, all of those things uh, being placed on the bones and then the skin coming on over it. And then finally, breath. So God took those dry bones and yet made them into full 
living bodies. Now, that was a vision that was given to Ezekiel to talk about what God intended to do with Israel. But that's the analogy here. This isn't, it isn't saying, we're not saying here that Ezekiel is talking directly about a promise of resurrection, though he, though we can connect it to that. But we see that that that's, that's what resurrection is somewhat like. God will be able to take whatever is left of our bodies and make them into new bodies. Secondly, Paul offers an analogy from the animal world in this passage as well. That's verses, in verse 39. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of animals, another of fish, and another of birds. Our bodies aren't the same as those of reptiles and mammals. You know, your body is not the same as a lion's body. There are similarities because we're all, both physical beings. You're not the same as a fish. You're not the same as a bird. Nor are they the same as one another. If God can make so many kinds of flesh, as Paul uses the term there for, physical bodies, human bodies, land animals, sea creatures, birds, what would stop him from making bodies for us that are suitable for his heavenly presence? Nothing. The answer is nothing. This is why Paul says to these people, you're not using your heads. What would stop God from being able to do this? God is capable of it, and he has promised to do it. So it's actually not illogical or unreasonable to believe in resurrection. It's unreasonable not to. It's foolish to scoff at that. A third thing we see here is Paul offers an analogy from cosmic things. In verse 14, 40 rather, he writes, There are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies, but the glory of the celestial is one and the glory of the terrestrial is another. As he goes on in the next verse to talk about the sun, moon, and stars, we see he's not talking here about the difference between our bodies made fit for heaven later on and our current bodies, earthly versus a heavenly body. Uh, He'll get into that shortly, but in verse 40, I think he's just, uh, uh, just pointing out that physical things on earth and in the heavens, in the sky and in space, are different. Just as in modern English we might say that uh, lakes and seas and oceans are bodies of water, in ancient Greek a body, a soma, uh, could refer to physical non-living things just as it could to a living thing's body. Uh, Paul is saying that, that on earth... There are rocks and mountains and valleys and rivers and lakes and seas. They're not all like each other. A lake is not like a mountain, and the next mountain's not like the next mountain. The next the lake is not like the next lake. In the heavens, there are the sun and the moon and the stars. They're all different. But they're all glorious. God made all these things. And he made them with different kinds and degrees of grandeur and glory. Verse 41, there is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For one star differs from another in glory. If God can make so many different glorious things, can he not raise the dead and give you a glorious body? 
Moreover, he's made these glorious things as part of the material universe. Remember, that was probably part of the challenge here to the notion of resurrection, was a belief that some had, because they were influenced by Greek philosophy, that matter is evil, that, that we need to escape the material world, not be resurrected, and the Bible promises resurrection. So we have the belief of some that matter is evil. That's not consistent with the glory that God has given to the material universe, even as we see it now in its fallen state, let alone how it was when he first created it and declared that everything was very good before the fall of mankind into sin. If he can make the sun to be bright and brilliant and to heat the earth, if he can make the soft, silvery, reflected light of the moon, if he can make stars of so many magnitudes and colors, and in the word stars included there would also be what we call planets, and, and the, the ancient Greeks call a, a planet just meant a wandering star. It, it moved uh, against the background of the fixed stars, so to speak. If he can make these heavenly bodies of different degrees of glory, if he can make stars of so many magnitudes and colors, what would stop him from making a body for you that can dwell in his glorious presence? And of course the answer is nothing. As Paul says at the beginning of verse 42, so also is the resurrection of the dead. He can do this with the things he's already made. He can certainly do it with you too. A fourth thing that we see here is that Paul gives a description of the resurrected human body. Not a description of how it will look. Oh, it'll be different than, than your body this way. Your nose will be tweaked a little. And No, he's not saying things like that. But a description in the sense of uh, the characteristics that would make it different from our bodies as they are now in this life. He writes in verse 42 through 44, So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. So notice the connection here to seeds as well. Just like you sow the seed, put it in the ground. This, your body is sown in that sense. It's put in the ground or in a tomb or even in the sea. But it's sown in corruption, it's raised in incorruption. It's sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. There's a natural body, and there is a spiritual body. This is as if Paul is saying, okay, you resurrection-denying scoffers, you ridicule the idea that a body which is let's be frank, rotting in the grave right now, can be raised. You laugh at the notion of resurrection, incapable of imagining how it might even work. Well, here's something of how it works. A, the body is raised in incorruption. So right now it decays, and if you die it'll decay faster. It'll be raised in incorruption. It won't be capable of decay. B, it's raised in glory. You know, by juxtaposing glory there, you notice again, against dishonor, it's sown in dishonor and raised in glory. Paul is telling us that he has sin and sinfulness in mind here. Glorification in the New Testament 
connects to a ridding of all of our sinfulness. The new body will be no longer under the influence of sin. It will not even have a dead sin nature to contend with like we do now. As Paul cries out in Romans 7.24, Who will deliver me from this body of death? Well, Christ will deliver you from this body of death. You will be delivered from it if your trust is in him. See, Paul notes here, the body is raised in power. The word power there means ability. It's the, the noun form of the verb can or to be able. Weakness and frailty will be gone. No more debilitating hunger or thirst. We have indications that we'll still eat in the world to come, but no more debilitating hunger or thirst. No more fatigue. No more spiritual frailty either. No more temptations to sin. D, it will be raised a spiritual body, we're told here. Now, don't misunderstand that. Uh, Paul has been adamant that he's talking about real physical resurrection. Uh, Shortly, he'll offer a a comparison to Jesus' resurrected body, which is a real living body, a physical body. We know Jesus' uh, words in Luke 24, 39, a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. That was after his resurrection. And Luke then reports that Jesus ate food, fish and some honey, a honeycomb. He had, and still has, a material body following his resurrection. Rather, by spiritual body here, Paul is talking about an actual physical body, but one that is fit for heaven. One that has been changed to be suitable for God's holy presence. It's a body with no remaining sin or effects of sin on it. It will be suitable for the holy presence of God with eyes too pure to look upon evil, as Habakkuk 1.13 puts it. Notice Paul uses the word for a physical body here. It's the Greek word soma he's still using. And notice also that it's raised. Well, if your physical body remains in the grave and you just become a spirit, then nothing's raised. Your physical body is not to be escaped or done away with. Ultimately, it is to be raised. And made suitable for God's heavenly presence. Then fifth here, Paul offers the example of Christ himself. He's the prototype, as we saw before. Christ was raised physically from the dead. Not just as a spirit, His body, though, is now different than it was before his resurrection. Verses 45 through 49, and we'll get into these in more depth in the future. He says, and so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterward the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of the dust, or made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. So we'll talk more, as I said, Lord willing, in a couple of weeks about what it means that Jesus is the last Adam and all of these things that Paul said in these verses. For now, note that 
Adam is the progenitor of the human race. He's the first ancestor of all of mankind. He was made from the dust of the earth. Eve was made from his body. And so the whole human race comes from them. And so ultimately we can trace ourselves back to Adam specifically. We all descend from those first two human beings. And the second one came from the first one. So we are all of that body of dust, therefore. As we saw back in verses 21 through 23. For since by man came death, or as we've noted then, we can translate that as by a man, by Adam. So for since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive, but each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterwards those who are Christ's at his coming. We all die. We're all subject to death because we inherited our human nature from Adam, who fell. A fallen, broken, sinful nature is what we received through our natural generation. Jesus, like Adam, is the covenant representative of all who are in him. So just as he rose with a body fit for heaven, so he gives life and spiritual bodies, bodies made suitable for heaven, to all who are in him. Just as we bear Adam's image, we will also perfectly bear the image of Christ in the world to come. That is, we will have the same nature he has. I'm talking about his human nature here. We won't become God. Lots of false religions will tell you that. You won't become God, but you will inherit a nature like Jesus' perfect human nature. Sinless, with a glorified body, a body that can exist in the glorious presence of God. There is nothing illogical about believing in resurrection then. It is supremely reasonable to take God at his word. It's also supremely reasonable to believe that he can do what he said he will do. That he can do anything that he wants with the things that he's created. We have the evidence of that fact all around us. In the cycles of plant life. In the varieties of animal life in the varieties of glory of both earthly and heavenly bodies. And since God has promised resurrection for his people in glorified bodies, it would be foolish for us to think it can't happen. Since he's shown what that's like in the example of Jesus Christ, it would be really silly of us to scoff at the notion of resurrection. So rather than think that your faith has to be something unreasonable apart from reason, and rather than think that, that well, I, I don't need evidence for resurrection to believe in, I'll just, I'll just make a leap of faith here. No, it's reasonable to believe in resurrection. Know that it's logical to believe in resurrection. If you had no evidence for it, it might not be, but since you have evidence that God is who he is, and that he can do anything he wants, And since you know that he has promised to raise the dead, then you can know it's true. And you can rest in that knowledge through trust in Jesus Christ. Well, let's pray. Lord, grant us the faith to take you at your word, to believe you can do all things, that we might trust that resurrection is real, 
and recognize that it is truly reasonable to believe in resurrection because you have promised it and we are supremely reasonable when we believe that what you speak is true. Pray that you would help us to have a strengthened faith day by day, therefore. In Jesus' name, amen.